Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Welcome to everybody joining us online. Uh, I'm so delighted that you can all join us today for this valedictory speech from Lord Evans of Weirdale, who is the outgoing chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, a role he has held since 2018 um, and will be stepping down from at the end of this month. Um, before becoming chair, of course, uh, Lord Evans has spent 33 years in the UK Security Service, uh, latterly as Director General of MI5 between 20, uh, 2007 and 2013. And uh, the committee has uh, produced a number of very notable and useful reports under his chairmanship. So we're delighted to have him here today to give this valedictory lecture. Um, as I should have said, my name is Hannah White and I'm Director of the Institute for Government um, I will put some questions uh, to Lord Evans when he has delivered his speech, and then we will open up to the audience for your questions. Uh, we'll also be taking questions from online, so if you're watching online, please do feel free to use Slido to send in those questions, and I will receive them on my iPad. Um, and if anybody is uh, still using uh, Twitter or X, uh, then uh, we will be tweeting uh, or, or doing whatever you do from X um, uh, uh, using the hashtag IFG standards uh, so you can follow along using that. Uh, so uh, with no more ado, I hand over to you, Lord Evans. Thank you very much. Well, good afternoon and uh, thank you particularly to the Institute for Government for hosting uh, this event. Uh, at the end of my term, time as chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life. Quite rightly, the, uh, the tenure of a chair of this committee is five years and no renewals in order to avoid any risk that you want to curry favour with the government. Uh, uh, but it's been an interesting five years because uh, over that time uh, we have seen uh, four prime ministers, three in the last year, uh, three independent advisers on ministerial interests, all of whom have been outstanding. Uh, we've seen the COVID uh, pandemic, we have seen Partygate, and we have seen a number of other uh, developments. Um, when I took the job, and when I agreed to do the job, um, it was, shall we say, a quieter landscape. Uh, so it's been uh, more exciting than I expected. Uh, in my remarks today, I don't want to dwell too much on past events, uh, but to consider how the standards landscape has changed, the gaps in the system that we have, uh, and how I think public standards need to be strengthened in future. At the core of any democratic system is the principle that government operates on the basis of consent. This is demonstrated, obviously, through elections that decide who will govern, but it should also be demonstrated by the way in which those in office use the power that they have won. That is where high public standards come in, and in essence, they are about ensuring that entrusted power is used for the public good rather than for private or sectional benefit. Public standards underpin trust which in turn bolsters public consent. Despite some of what we have seen in recent years, I continue to believe that most public servants, whether MPs, ministers, civil servants, local government officials or nurses, do try to uphold high public standards. That is why when standards go wrong, we should avoid suggesting that they are all the same. That sort of cynicism seems to me to be an enemy of high public ethics. Uh, most people in public service are keen to do the right thing and they have joined the public service in whatever role because of their wish to contribute. As I've said before, I don't believe there was ever a golden age for standards. Scandals have arisen for decades and for centuries. Views and opinions and values change, the context of society changes, and codes governing conduct therefore require regular attention to meet these new challenges. The Nolan principles of honesty, objectivity, openness, selflessness, integrity, 
accountability and leadership, the seven principles of public life haven't changed since they were established 28 years ago. On a personal note, my only reservation about them is that they're very hard to remember because they are all rather general, um, which is why whenever I am doing anything in a public context, uh, I always have them written down in front of me in case the interviewer suddenly says, tell me the seven standards. <laughs> I think I could do it, but I'm not taking the risk. Um, so they haven't changed in 28 years. Uh, and, and although the descriptions of them have been slightly updated, uh, the principles themselves have stood the test of time. They apply to everybody involved in the delivery of public services, whether it's individual public office holders, institutions or private companies who are involved in the delivery of public service. Personally speaking, when I became a school governor, uh, I was given a copy of the principles, which I think shows their reach. Uh, and at the start of every parliament, as a member of the House of Lords, I sign an undertaking to abide by a code of conduct incorporating the principles. They are there to remind me and other office holders of the expectations of the public that we serve. But they are not enough on their own. They need to be understood through codes of conduct applicable to specific contexts, and they need to be debated, discussed, and made real in specific organizational settings. An issue that we touched on in one of our recent reports and to which I shall return. So the principles haven't changed, but the polarized and unstable nature of British politics in recent years has placed them under great pressure. Our political institutions, as well as our standards, bodies, and structures have faced great challenge. The attempt to tear up the independent system for maintaining standards in Parliament in November 2021, in the House of Commons at least in 2021, the Owen Paterson affair was scandalous and it was damaging. And we've also seen instances of poor practice in hospitals, in the police and elsewhere, all part of a wider public landscape that undermines public confidence. The damage done to the trust and confidence that the public have in those in political and public life has been significant. And I was looking only this morning at the recent data from the OECD, uh, where also the ONS uh, were involved, which demonstrates that standards trust in, uh, in public life in this country, uh, particularly political life, uh, is low by international standards. As a result of these problems, there has been an increasing recognition that it's not enough to rely just on people behaving well. Members of the public simply cannot understand why behaviours that would be tolerated in other organisations seem to go unchallenged in the political world without any apparent sanction. The argument put forward by some through this period was that ministers should not be constrained that they have a democratic mandate, which is true, and that the regulatory checks and balances between elections were standing in the way of getting things done. And for a while, it seemed that the public would go along with this, and that maybe standards mattered less at a time of great national uh, stress or national emergency, such as during the pandemic. But, as we have seen, the failure to adhere to accepted standards of conduct ultimately led to major public and political consequences, consequences that, in my judgment, were largely avoidable. At the same time, there has been increased tension in the key relationship between Parliament and government. We saw a period of parliamentary activism of an unprecedented kind during the Brexit crisis in 2019, followed by a period in which government saw its electoral mandate as a justification for the domination of Parliament. And both periods served to polarise attitudes. When attitudes are polarised, the consensus upon which standards and norms of conduct rest becomes more fragile. And polarisation also encourages extremism, which opens the door to the intimidation of many ordinary MPs who are trying to do their best for their constituents. 
leading to widespread difficulty in recruiting the best candidates, especially among women and ethnic minorities, and more generally turning politics into something that many ordinary citizens do not want to be involved in. We don't yet know how far this is just history that could be put behind us, or whether we will continue to, or whether it will continue to haunt public debate over the next parliament. But we should be clear that for all its adversarial elements, the Westminster model relies on an underlying commitment to a system of conventions and rules of conduct that are central to preserving high standards and to maintaining public confidence and form part of the unwritten constitution. For government, accountability, one of the Nolan principles, mostly means accountability to parliament, which represents all electors. But it seems to me that governments have been increasingly reluctant to make parliamentary accountability a reality, both in the way parliament runs and in the way that legislation is drafted. In avoiding accountability to parliament, the government is also seeking to avoid accountability to the electorate, the public. Now, in any voyage, ships are repaired at sea. Monitoring of performances and the rectification of errors needs to be an ongoing process. When the relationships between government and parliament and with the wider administration become hostile and conflictual, necessary repairs are delayed. Public appointments are not made. Recommendations are not responded to. And what might be seen as lesser matters are put off. And we have seen many signs of this in the last few years, leading to a feeling well uh, rehearsed in the media that nothing works properly. Looking back at the work of the committee over the past five years, I think there are areas where the government could make significant improvements quite quickly. In the past six years, and I say six years because I want to capture the, one of the reports of, uh, that was published under the term of my predecessor, uh, the committee has produced reviews on intimidation in public life, MPs' outside interests, local government ethical standards, artificial intelligence and public standards, the regulation of, of election finance, uh, a, a wide uh, report on upholding standards in public life, and finally, leading in practice, published at the beginning of this year. The government has responded positively to some of our recommendations, but not many. There's more that could be done in all these areas. On MPs' outside interests, the public is clear that being an MP should be your full-time principal job. The current rules don't meet that expectation, and I expect this issue will continue to impact on public perceptions of standards uh, in the future. A new code of conduct and guide to the rules came into force on the 1st of March this year as a result of widespread consultation by the, committee, uh, the Commons Committee on Standards. Our submission proposed a more objective means of setting reasonable limits on paid outside employment. The new code didn't do, go that far, but it does ban paid parliamentary advice, provision of paid parliamentary advice. And it requires members to have a written contract for outside work, and it tightens the lobbying rules. And of course, we welcome these changes. On local government standards, there is still a major problem. We were very disappointed that the government took three years to respond to our 2019 report. Uh, so it, I think it's actually a 2018, no, it is a 2019 report, that's good. Uh, and then rejected our recommendations. Uh, we hope that the pragmatic reforms that we recommended, for which there is widespread support in the sector, can be looked at with fresh eyes. Whilst we welcome the local government association's model code of conduct, members of the public still have no redress when there are standards failures at a local level. On election finance, we produced a substantive and detailed report with a series of practical recommendations. The government told us on the 10th of July this year that it will not respond further to our 2021 report. There are significant risks in the government's failure to close loopholes in election donation laws not least around foreign interference in our political process. 
This is where public standards meets national security, and clear vulnerabilities have not been addressed by the government. On lobbying, there is more to be done to ensure transparency, and we held a seminar recently with good discussion on both sides of the argument. And I hope that the committee might uh, decide to return to this issue uh, in due course. It's an area that needs watching. There, are, there needs to be clarity on standards expected of all public office holders, and it needs to be pragmatic but act in the public interest and provide reassurance for the public that a fair and transparent approach to lobbying is actively being applied by those involved in making and influencing government policy. Much lobbying is good and it's a necessary part of uh, democracy, but there needs to be transparency and there needs to be fairness. Back in 2020, the committee produced a report on artificial intelligence, looking at how we ensure that high ethical standards can be upheld as technology assists decision-making uh, increasingly across the public sector. I think we may have been a bit ahead of our time uh, because nobody took much interest in it when we published it. Uh, but it's kind of, um, it's having a second life. Uh, and the speed of advance means that artificial intelligence is now part of everyday life and discourse. We welcome the government's intention to hold a high-level safety summit in November and we're currently following up our, our report with regulators and the committee will decide how and whether it wishes to take forward more work in this area. And the government recently responded to our 2021 report upholding public standards, which was a landscape review that included uh, the public appointment system, the business appointment rules, the ministerial code, and transparency around lobbying. We welcome the steps that have been taken uh, and the signals that standards matter. Uh, but I'm sure the committee will want to see how quickly the government meets its stated commitments to our recommendations and those of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee uh, and of Sir Nigel Boardman. And finally, our Leading in Practice report looked at how we encourage attention to high public standards as part of the normal life of organisations across the public sector. And in some ways, I think this is almost the most important uh, part of public standards. When I had my initial hearing on appointment, I said that I felt we needed not just to have effective rules and compliance, we also needed to give attention to the culture, the behaviours within our public service organisations, which are as important uh, in making sure that people do the right things as written rules. Of all our reports, leading in practice seems to have been the most, had the most significant reach and impact across a wide range of organisations. And we've been struck by the number of invitations we have received to talk about the report uh, within government, outside government, and even from overseas. The clear message in the evidence that we heard was first, the importance of setting the tone from the top. What are the leaders saying and how are they behaving? Leaders have a responsibility to ensure that rules are underpinned by a shared understanding of the core ethical values at the heart of public service. Then people are encouraged to talk, are people encouraged to talk about ethical challenges in their work. What do the seven principles actually mean for us? How can we discuss them? How can we ensure that they are reflected in our day-to-day -day work experience? And also the question of recruitment. Should we have an element of values-based recruitment? Recruiting not just by technical skills, but also by how far the people we are recruiting actually align with the values of the organisation and of public service. This matters, in my view, in public service. And across all this, I think, is the question of speaking up. There must be accessible routes for people to speak up without fear or the feeling that it's futile to do so. And when people summon up the courage to speak out, leaders need to listen with curiosity and be willing to act. The Lucy Letby case demonstrates with stark clarity why this matters. Looking to the future, therefore, the standards regime needs to respond to this changing environment. We live in a society where there are 
fears and lack of understanding about the implications of artificial intelligence, where social media's power continues to grow, and where intimidation in public life is a very real problem. Against that difficult background, the key challenge is not to allow any damage done to lead to a further weakening of trust in institutions and those who work within them. I recognise that structural solutions cannot solve political problems, but equally, they are an important component. But there are some immediate problems to solve. First, the government system for ensuring compliance with standards is very weak and needs overhaul. The priority that is given to this in government departments is low, and this opens a door to opacity and potentially to corruption. If you look, for instance, at the very unsatisfactory way in which transparency reports are published in respect of lobbying, it's pretty clear that this is not a priority. Financial interests and conflicts of interest must be disclosed, and the information must be accessible to the public. There is no reason for the government not to act quickly on its commitment to reform in this area in its response to our report upholding public standards. Some private corporations are miles ahead of the government in this area. Second, alongside proper transparency and accountability is the need to develop a culture where people are comfortable discussing the ethical dimension of their work and standards of conduct expected in their organisation. An organisation where values are front and centre and underpin how people go about their work helps in the delivery of public services because morale is high, people are comfortable speaking up and so risks are spotted before they escalate and people can find better ways of doing this, doing things. This was very clear in the evidence process that we undertook before leading in public, uh, leading in, in uh, practice. Some organisations were very comfortable talking about these issues, and they were organisations which I think would generally be seen as very high performing. I'm constantly struck when a major scandal breaks just how many of the issues were known about within the system. Whether it's lockdown parties or misogyny and racism within the Met or other problems, staff often knew. And sometimes they tried to raise it. Untold distress could have been avoided the many public inquiries and investigations could have been made unnecessary if the culture of those organisations had been different and the internal systems that identified issues and allowed people to speak up had been in place. Thirdly, I think it's important that there are consequences if standards are not adhered to. If there is an investigation and then consequences follow in a timely manner where appropriate, that's a success. That is true for the public and private sector, and we need to look not just at outcomes, but how they are achieved. The how is often as important as the what. And finally, and perhaps the most serious problem, is around the abuse and intimidation of those in public life. We first looked at the impact of this back in 2017 at the request of Theresa May, then Prime Minister, and there has been some progress in the area. Imprints required from November on digital political campaign materials, passing of the online safety bill, and so on. But intimidation across public life remains a big issue. It's hugely damaging to democracy and is a major factor in putting people off serving in public roles. It's completely unacceptable that individuals, and in many cases their families, should be subject to threats and abuse for doing their job, and we've seen examples of that reported in the last week. And I'm not just talking about national politicians, but many other public roles as counsellors, as doctors, as teachers. We have complex problems to solve as a society. We need to be able to debate and disagree with each other well. If intimidation and threats cause talented people to feel that they have to leave public life, and that is happening, or deter people good people from considering playing their part by standing as a councillor or a local MP or applying for a public appointment, we are all losers. In conclusion, there's no, case, no room for complacency. There are still gaps in the system, and I hope the government and others will look at those and maintain a dialogue 
on what can, we can do to drive high standards. And there's a responsibility on all of us to be leaders and to build a trustworthy public life on behalf of our fellow citizens. In closing, I'd like to say a few words of thanks. It's been a privilege to lead the committee. The past five years have been made much easier by knowing that I had the support of the chairs and officers of the whole range of standards bodies in this complicated landscape, a number of whom I can see here today. They have been thoughtful, honest and generous with their advice and support. And I am of course indebted to my fellow committee members. All members, past and present, have contributed wisely to the standards debate, giving their time and experience. I have greatly valued the voices of both our independent and our political members. The committee's work really benefits from having this mix of expertise around the table. I'm also greatly indebted to our outstanding secretariat, whose diligence, sound judgment, good humour and integrity show the es essence of what good public service is about. And finally, my thanks to all those who have given evidence to us. Uh, one of the things that I will sometimes miss is the stream of emails uh, coming to my House of Lords account, uh, some of which are very insightful. And some, of which, and some of which are misdirected. Uh, but it's the committee's role to review arrangements for standards in public life against the Nolan framework, but we couldn't do our job without hearing the experience and the expertise of others. Uh, academics, practitioners, those in public office, elected and appointed, as well as people in the private sector and members of the public who are willing to give evidence and talk to us and I'm grateful to them all. I wish, wish my successor, the next chair, uh, every success in their role and perhaps a smoother time in the standards world. Uh, I know they will have the excellent support of committee members as well as many of those in the room today. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Lord Evans, and it's, um, I, should, I guess I should declare uh, interest as a former secretary to the Committee on Standards in Public Life, but it's been uh, really fascinating to, to follow the work of the committee under your chairmanship, so, and thank you for those really interesting reflections. Um, as I said, I'll, I'll, I'll just put a few questions myself, and then we'll, we'll come to the questions from the audience. Um, I wanted to get your sort of overarching sense. As you said in your speech... Um, there's, when the CSPR was set up, it was because there was a sort of common consensus that there was a need to articulate a set of principles and to start to build some structure around what we expect as a, as a country of people in, in public life. More recently, there has been this um, sense sort of from, a, from a political perspective that maybe it's less appropriate to put constraints around um, what, uh, what politicians can do because fundamentally they are ultimately accountable to, to the public at, at the ballot box. But we've, as you said, sort of seen the, the consequences of that. What is your sense now? Are we, which way is the dial turning? Are we uh, going back on a trajectory towards sort of feeling that actually we need to strengthen some of these rules and so on? Or, or do you think there's going to continue to be that contestation of that sort of model? Um, my impression over the last 12 months is that there's been perhaps a slight recalibration towards the, uh, the position that there need to be checks and balances. Um, I note with interest the report, and I thought it was absolutely exemplary, or that the Prime Minister's independent advisor or ministerial interests did into uh, Mr. Zahawi's uh, activities, uh, which seemed to me to be a, an absolutely clear example of how the system should be working, with the facts being made clear, uh, with a recommendation being actually or implicitly made, but the political uh, decision uh, still resting with ministers. Uh, and I strongly believe that you know political decisions need to rest with politically elected people, and that's, that's right. But uh, we see both, you know, very early on the current Prime Minister talking about the need to show um, exemplary high standards and accountability, etc. And of course the Labour Party have also 
been uh, making undertakings around this and the, with their own proposals for how they would structure such a, a move. So I think at the moment, the, the response to the public concern, I think, you know, that we have seen, particularly over Partygate, but also about some of the other things, I think means that the political consensus has perhaps moved slightly back towards the, uh, the checks and balances model. I agree that that, that, um, that letter from the Prime Minister's advisor was, was uh, really interesting because not only did it uh, evaluate the, the, sort of, uh, the actions of Mr. Zahawi against the letter of the rules, but it also evaluated them against the, the Nolan standards. principles themselves and those yep. standards and, and, and incorporated that into it, which I thought was, was, was really uh, a good approach. Um, you made a couple of references in your speech to um, election-related uh, uh, matters, and obviously we, we all think we're in the run-up uh, to uh, the next general election at some point in the next year. I just I wonder if you could say a, few, a, a bit more about where you think our focus ought to be in terms of thinking about standards. You mentioned both the... the the question which I totally agree is really troubling of inter in intimidation of, of people in public life and you know my concern that this is really impoverishing this the pool of, yeah. of people who are willing to put themselves through that and I, I think you were sort of indicating that there's also this this interesting question around electoral finance as you say in the possibility of inter in um, uh, foreign interference in our electoral system so where, where do you think we ought to be um, focusing in, uh, on these questions? Well, I think it's very important that there should be, at the very least, the transparency uh, of where the money is coming from. But I also believe that it's an anomalous that we have a situation today where if you are a charity receiving a donation, you probably have higher uh, regulatory rules to meet in accepting it than you do if you're a major political party. Uh, and I find that quite hard. Well, I don't find it hard to understand in reality, uh, but, <laughs> but I find it hard to understand in principle. Um, so I think there is an issue there. Uh, and, you know, I'm not, un, I, you know, I'm not... One of the real benefits, actually, of having active politicians on the committee was that when we were doing that report, you know, we came out, you know, with some preliminary high-minded thoughts and uh, they were shot down very effectively and helpfully by people who'd actually fought general elections and said that will never survive uh, you know, a, a general election because uh, it's just not like that. And I think that's a that's benefit. So we need to be pragmatic about this, but we also need to ensure that there is public confidence. Now, at the moment, there is considerable uh, public confidence in the electoral system, and that is a great asset to us. But we must avoid any risk that that gets eroded. Um, and I, you know, this is an area that I'm very interested in and I won't go on about it at great length, uh, but I do feel that there are gaps there that need to be addressed. The other one is public uh, is intimidation, uh, which will almost certainly uh, feature during the, the run-up to an election. Um, we made a number of recommendations on that. Not all of them have been accepted. We stand, I think, by those recommendations, which are still on, on the table from our point of view in our 2017 report. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't, I, we don't know, we as a committee don't know, I don't know how you can get, get out of this problem in a thorough way, but it is a major uh, difficulty for us at the moment and in the sense that it reduces people's willingness to, to commit to a public role. Uh, and that is anti-democratic. I remember in the, when we were talking to a number of people in public life on this uh, two or three years ago, it was very clear that several MPs had changed their voting intention in debates, in divisions in, the, in Parliament because of fear of what would happen if they voted the other way. So they voted against their conscience and against their judgment because they were frightened of what might happen to them. And that is a really serious undermining of parliamentary democracy. Uh, and so anything that we can do in terms of uh, both trying to change the way in which the dialogue happens to support those who are in public life, and I think there have been some better steps on that, uh, but don't provoke really by the appalling outcomes for you know, David Amos and, and Joe Cox and so on and, and their deaths. Um, so there are things that we have done, but we need to be looking for every opportunity to go further on that. Very much agree. Um, 
Moving on uh, to transparency and uh, transparency standards in government, which is something we at the Institute have uh, done a lot of work on. You described compliance with existing transparency standards as very weak, and we and you have both made uh, recommendations, as have others, uh, about how they could be um, strengthened. But given where we are, do you think there could be more could be done to hold the system to account for meeting the standards that currently exist, even if the government doesn't wish to go further? Well, we, we need to keep asking the question and pointing out where there are problems, and there are problems with transparency. The whole, the whole basis of our rules for lobbying, whether you think they're the right rules or not, is that uh, consultant lobbyists who can lobby for lots of different organisations must register, and that brings them under a degree of regulation. But uh, lobbyists who are working only for a single organisation do not need to register. And the reason they don't need to register is because their engagement with ministers and with senior officials will be caught by the transparency uh, declarations from departments. Uh, except that quite a lot of the government departments haven't been publishing them. So it blows a complete hole in the lobbying rules. Uh, and that's, you know, it's just, it isn't working. Uh, my own experience suggests to me that there is a structural problem, which is that there isn't a compliance function within government uh, or across public service. Uh, there is a kind of compliance bit, more an advisory bit, in, in propriety and ethics in the Cabinet Office, but their remit is very much the central government. But if you go beyond that, uh, I haven't yet found any compliance department or compliance function that actually makes sure that if somebody says, this is what we're going to do, that that is actually what happens. So, therefore, sometimes it isn't. And that's, a, in my view, a big gap, uh, which you know, the public sector are uh, you know, missing a big trick. When my colleague, Tim Durrant, who's at the back somewhere, uh, compiled some league tables on this for government departments, it had a remarkable effect, I would say, <laughs> on uh, some of the transparency Good declarations night. by different departments, <laughs> but I'm not sure that should be for us to be doing. I will give a little call out, which I didn't in my speech, but I, will, I do believe, which is that... Um, the media are absolutely critical in all of this, and a free media that can poke around and discover where there are problems. Time and again, actually, the, the problems that have emerged and the, the scandals that have been uncovered, very often the first indication of this is, comes from the media. So actually, and it's strange for me as an ex-spy to say this, uh, I think that uh, a free an inquiring media is absolutely crucial uh, to some of this, and also other parts of you know, civic society, such as the IFG, who are looking and reporting what they find. Um, finally, I just want to ask about uh, MPs' second jobs, which you also uh, raised. As you say, you'd, you made recommendations about those. Um, again, as we come into an election, uh, I think it's, it's really important that people standing for election understand the basis on which they will be operating should they be successful in being elected. So do you think it's important that um, parties make clear their stance on, on this issue in their manifestos? I think it should be, and I think it's also, and something that we've said previously, I believe, that it would be useful if MPs, who are, well, those who are standing to become MPs, made it clear to their electors, potential electors, uh, what they will be doing in terms of other roles if they are intending to, so that you know what you are getting and that electors can make their decision. The committee has never taken the view that there should be no second jobs, uh, but we do believe that there need to be limits on the amount of time and effort that somebody is putting into a second job. Thank you. Okay, I will take questions in the room now. My colleague has a raving mic. If you uh, wouldn't mind giving your name uh, and where you're from so that we can understand that before you speak. Um, there's a gentleman on the aisle here, Lauren. Uh, good afternoon and thank you. My name is Graham Pendlebury. I'm a, a retired senior civil servant. Uh, Lord Evans, I mean, politicians and public office holders are all human beings. Um, and sometimes uh, they, they make mistakes, have failings, and we all express outrage about them, whilst actually in many cases sharing similar failings amongst ourselves. Do you think there's a risk that we judge public office holders to a higher standard than we actually all behave in our own everyday lives? 
Well, oh, should we take I'm sorry, we'll take yeah, you can yeah, do them yeah, in yeah. one go. Uh, do you want to go next door? Thank you. Duncan Hames, Transparency International. Uh, I, I wondered if you were concerned uh, about the model of uh, conduct of politics and public service, um, notably in other English-speaking countries, and whether that has influenced or inspired some of the challenging times for standards in public life that you described in your speech. What do you have in mind there? Well, both the intimidation, I mean, insurrection, frankly, in, in Congress, um, mm. but, but the sense that uh, the conventions of British public life uh, have been challenged by those that have experienced of politics in these countries, whether Australia or the United States, and that that has... Uh, brought about uh, different attitudes to political might rather than necessarily right. Okay. And Lauren, do you want to ask the gentleman who's come through from next door just so he can then sit down again? Oh, yes. Um, Simon Israel, formerly of Channel 4 News. Um, you mentioned only once in your speech the word corruption. Mm -hmm. And I want to really know what your view is on, while corruption may take many forms, what the scale of it is perceived as now within British politics, not just by countries abroad, but essentially by the, if you say you've received an awful lot of emails, wanted and unwanted, but by the public here as to whether any part of government can really be trusted at the moment. So we've got, um, do we yep. hold people to an unrealistic, higher standard, yep. international models, um, and then perceptions and scale of corruption? No. Um, I think probably it isn't unreasonable to hold people to higher standards if they wish to be in positions of public power, um, because you know, they are acting on behalf of others and are using entrusted power and therefore it's not unreasonable that they should be expected to meet high standards. If somebody wants to live a private life, and you know, I don't really care what they do in their own time, uh, but if they're doing it on the basis of uh, power that is entrusted to them by the public, I do think it's reasonable to have different expectations. But I think you are right that we can't expect to be, you know, to have everybody in a public role, whether in government or in civil service or whatever, should be expected to be amazingly saintly and never get anything wrong, uh, which is why you need a sensible judgment as to whether somebody is deliberately breaking the rules because they are ill-intentioned or whether this was an error or, you know. And I think if you look at the different um, responses, if you look in Parliament, for instance, um, some of the reports that would say, yes, this individual did actually breach the rules, but it looks as though it was unintentional and therefore, you know, they should apologise. That seems reasonable. Uh, if, on the other hand, they have been taking public, uh, you know, money for, for um, in an improper way, for exclusive benefit of others, then that's different. So I don't think we can expect everybody to be perfect in any way, and I, you know, uh, absolutely understand that. Uh, but we can still have systems which can make those judgments effectively. Uh, and I think we have actually seen that. Uh, and one of the recommendations that we did make on the, um, the ministerial code, for instance, was that the traditional idea that if you breach the ministerial code, you should resign, actually, I think is you know, a bit disproportionate, really, because that, that, if, if you've done something outrageous, then you should resign. If you've done something minor or inadvertent, then perhaps you should just apologize. So we need a range of responses depending on what's been going on. Um, has there been sort of seepage from other um, political cultures into the UK? Not a question I've particularly given much direct thought to. Maybe there has. I don't know whether it you know, works in both directions, but I think there's partly a general... Uh, I mean, if you look across much, many of the Western democracies, the, the shall we say, the tone of the debate has coarsened. Um, and the, the, the kind of the willingness to seek consensus has uh, reduced. And I feel that that's a risk. Um, there may be some good reasons for that, but it also brings big risks. And it's quite interesting. I think in the UK, if anything, we're seeing the pendulum perhaps 
slightly come back. I mean, if you look at what we're likely to see in the next election, which presumably is likely to be Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak as the two main contestants, as I, don't mean, I don't mean contestants in like a quiz show, but I mean, um, uh, those contesting the election, um, that's a rather different um, couple of people from the people that we had at the last election, both of whom were perhaps more uh, you know, outspoken in the way that they presented themselves. Uh, so I wonder whether we might be seeing a bit of a swing back at the moment, whether that's permanent or not, I don't know. Um, corruption. Um, I said, I think actually here some years ago, I do not think the UK is a deeply corrupt country. Uh, I don't think that we are um, in a situation where, in, in, their, in terms of their daily lives, people are having to pay bribes. I don't think most people in public life are uh, doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, but this is something where you need to be permanently vigilant because otherwise you can go down a path from which it can be very difficult to get back. And international perceptions of the UK do appear to have slipped. Uh, there is a perception, it appears, Transparency International uh, uh, publishes regularly on this, that UK standards and the perceptions of corruption have increased uh, over the last few years. And uh, famously, one of the ratings agencies reduced uh, increased the sort of risk on UK debt because of weaknesses in political governance. So, you know, there are indications that internationally we are seen as having sort of gone backwards. Um, and we absolutely, it's not in our interests for that to happen, both morally and economically, etc. One of the people who gave evidence to our, our upholding public standards work was a senior businessman. Uh, and his view was that public, high public standards are really important in terms of being able to build a successful business, uh, and he absolutely supported the need for high standards. So I don't think we are a corrupt country, but we could be a corrupt country if we don't attend to problems as they start to emerge and take corrective action. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of questions that have come through online, because otherwise I get told off for ignoring people online. Um, so we have a question uh, from G. Hewitson from the Quaker Truth and Integrity Group who says, is Peter Hennessy's good chap's theory of public service now outmoded? outmoded? And if so, what needs to replace it? Uh, a question from Aubrey Allegretti of The Guardian. I know you won't want to comment on the specifics of this, but he says the recent report into Peter Bone MP raised several issues. Among them, a complaint was made to the Conservative Party about him in 2017, but had not been dealt with by 2022. How could political parties improve their investigation processes? And I will take one more question from the lady uh, on the aisle here. Thank you very much. I, Stephanie Boyce, former president of the Law Society of England and Wales. I was pleased to hear you address the issue of recruitment and whether or not we need to review the criteria upon which we recruit from, especially when we do not see a civil service uh, or those who have been appointed reflect the society they are serving. Additionally, given the number of key keyboard warriors who now take to social media and our TV screens, is it now high time to impose greater restrictions on the use of social media and TV shows amongst our public servants and those who find their way onto our TV screens? Great. So, good chaps, yeah. Peter Bone and social media. Good chaps. I think I, I didn't actually use the phrase. I toyed with whether to use the <laughs> phrase, but I didn't quite reuse the phrase. Um, but I do think the good, chap, good chaps theory, if you want to call it that, has been under pressure. One of, the, uh, one of the reasons that we made a number of recommendations in upholding public standards was to reinforce the position of the regulatory and ethics bodies and to put them on a sounder footing, which in a way is one step towards reinforcing. Um, at the end of the day, however, um, if you've got bad chaps or chapesses running things, it doesn't matter how many rules you've got, it won't work. So you've got to think about uh, the character of people who are running things. You've got to think about how you inculcate a culture. I'm slightly sort of cautious of the C word, but you know, you've got to inculcate a, a culture which is supportive of standards uh, to go alongside, as it were, sort of hard measures. 
but I do think that the, you know, the good chaps theory has been under pressure. But at the end of the day, you know, we, can't, we can't say, well, we don't need any of that. We're just going to go for kind of tough compliance because I don't believe that will actually end up in the right place. Um, the, Peter, the Peter Bone case, uh, I, I know nothing about the case other than what I've read in the media, so I can't comment on that, and it's not my job to anyway. Um, I do think there is a responsibility on political parties to help their, particularly their candidates, but also their MPs and, and, uh, and others uh, act, active in political life to uh, understand what the standards are and to be uh, helped to support them. Um, I think our experience of engaging with political parties has been a bit patchy, really, as to how keen some of them are or are not. Uh, but I do think there is a responsibility on them to do so. Um, are, are their investigative arrangements strong enough? I don't know. We don't look at the arrangements within political parties. Um, I, mean, I suppose you could argue that it would come within our remit, but I think it would be um, red ragism to do it, so we haven't. Um, but uh, they, I do think political parties have a responsibility. Um, the impact of social media, etc., should there be more constraints on it? Uh, that's not something which the committee has considered, certainly in my time, although it was reflected in the report Intimidation in Public Life. Um, I do think that the social media has been a significant uh, contributor to intimidation and abuse, and that's very evident. Um, and I think there is therefore a responsibility both on users of social media and on the, those who provide social media to uh, think about the social impact of what they're doing, not just to think about you know, commercial aspects. Um, my personal instinct would probably to be more restrictive than we are at present, but that is not something which the committee has looked at during the time that I've been there. Great, we'll take another round from the room. There's a gentleman at the front here. Thank you. Uh, Glenn Harmon from Full Fact. Um, next week, there's going to be a debate in Parliament, not sure how well attended, um, on whether lying in Parliament should be a criminal offence. And it's off the back of two e-petitions, both signed by well over 100,000 people. Now, at Full Fact, we don't, we don't believe that that should be the case. There should be better incentives for truth-telling that shouldn't fall to that. We've worked with IFG and others to persuade the Procedures Committee to change the corrections system in Parliament. MPs, hopefully, will shortly vote to be able to correct the record when they get something wrong. But our public research shows that people are tremendously concerned about truth-telling and that there aren't enough mechanisms to hold people account for doing that. Uh, oftentimes, at full fact, we don't know whether somebody's telling the truth because they haven't released data. There aren't the means to actually know whether they're doing it. I just wonder, from your work in your, in your tenure, if there are ways in which we might be able to push forward in other ways so that the principle of honesty of public office holders needing to tell the truth was much more evident and the public could see it. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. This lady here. Thank you. Um, Julian Dare formerly a diplomat and formerly before that local government. Um, when I started out my uh, working life, we had to have really good documentary trails of policy making, decision making, etc. By the time I retired, there was virtually no policy, uh, no uh, documentary trails left, making any sort of investigation very hard. And that also contributes to, I understand, the potential of removing things like judicial review or reducing it, um, which is another move behind that. But the lack of that trail is impossible. Thank you. Um. Hi, Dave Penman from the FDA. Um, I wonder whether you thought Labour's proposals for an independent integrity and ethics commission goes far enough. Obviously, it's talking about dealing with the role of the independent advisor and ACOBA, um, and it's picked up a number of recommendations from CSPL, but still retains essentially the decision-making process for the Prime Minister. So should that go further and, and, and create a fully independent process? Thank you. Okay, so we have lying in Parliament, we have uh, documentary evidence trails, uh, yeah. enabling investigation and Labour's proposals. Um, 
Well, members of the public who are concerned about truth-telling are right, aren't they? Um, and they should be concerned about it. And uh, I think that it is a, it is a fundamental uh, undermining of parliamentary democracy if ministers lie to uh, parliament, because you know, accountability, etc., can't work uh, if you can't get truth out of those who are accounting for their actions. So it's a really important issue. Uh, so I was pleased, therefore, to see the Privilege Committee take forward the work that they did on the very famous case. Uh, and I think it highlighted the fact that this is something that matters. I don't have an, a way of making this you know, work perfectly. Uh, and I think it's, again, it's one of those areas where um, I think it's been interesting, that, and full fact is a part of this, the way in which uh, you know, the, the very careful correction of errors, the very careful way of pointing out what the facts were about this particular story, I think is very desirable and works well. I actually think that the um, Office for Sticks of the Statistics Regulator, that model, the Statistics Authority, is a sort of national treasure, really. The fact that, you know, they will write out and say, you know, yeah, you misuse statistics here. And I think it's tremendous that we've got that. And, you know, I think it, it goes to the integrity of our official data. And I know there are all sorts of issues about what is a national statistic and what isn't. But nevertheless, uh, I think we are very well served by that. Um, but I think, ultimately, I don't, I don't believe it would be right to make lying in Parliament a criminal offence, because that's sort of a, there's a, seems to me that's kind of getting into sort of crossing over. I don't think, I rather doubt that the judiciary would welcome having to make decisions in that space either. Um, and ultimately people have to make their judgment on the ballot box. But I do think that anything that Parliament can do to reinforce that, and anything politically that people can, uh, that, that you know, politicians are willing to do to endorse the importance of truth-telling and to correct errors. And, you know, people do make errors, uh, and that, that's fine. No, it's not fine, it's just how it is. But if you correct them, then that's showing integrity. Uh, so I completely endorse how important that is. Uh, but we need to make sure that in just focusing on that, that we don't, you know, fall into other constitutional problems. On the question of records and trails, um, I entirely understand the concern. I mean, paradoxically, what seems to have happened is almost that it's, I mean, the, the amount of material that now has to be waded through in order to work out what on earth happened uh, makes it um, a, a, an even more difficult problem, not for lack of material, but almost having so much material. Um, and uh, it, would be, it would be very, it is an important part of uh, objectivity and of integrity and of accountability to record what has been done and why uh, so that it can be uh, you know, revisited when necessary. Uh, and I suspect there has been some move away from that. Uh, and that's a discipline that needs to be reinforced. Um, on the Labour Party proposals, um, uh, frequent flyers will no doubt have heard Angela Rayner talking about it from this very platform uh, two or three months ago. Um, I think the Labour Party proposals are still emergent, shall we say, um, and they are very careful, they are very narrowly focused on one little bit of the standards uh, regime, which is to do with ministerial code, etc. And I welcome the fact that uh, Angela Rayner said that they would be consulting widely on this because I think you need to get this just right. And I'm not confident yet as to quite how the Labour Party model would work. Um, and we have talked to you know, a number of overseas um, bodies who have some kind of integrity responsibility in various parts of the world. And there isn't one that you just say, that's great, and if we just imported that, it would work. There are bits here and there that you think are quite good. Uh, you know, the American system's got some quite strong uh, words, but I'm not sure that people would necessarily see that as optimised for integrity and effective government at the moment. Um, so, you know, there's no, there's no silver bullet here, and I hope very much that um, as the Labour Party continue to think about what this might mean, that they consult widely 
uh, and that they perhaps think about whether they just want something which very much focuses on what's happening in, within sort of half a mile of this building or whether they want something that's got slightly wider remit. So I think it's work in progress. Great. Okay, we're going to finish with a comment and a question from online. Um, so the comment comes from Martin Jelly, who is Lord Standards Commissioner, who says, and I think lots of people would like to echo this comment, uh, thank you, Lord Evans, for your leadership of the Standards Arena during your tenure, and thanks for your more informal role in bringing together leaders of standards bodies across Parliament and Government. Um, and the final question, um, Dennis Hall uh, asks, what one thing above all others could change for the better the behaviour of politicians and others in public life? Absolutely crystal clear leadership from political party leaders. Very good way to end. Thank you very much indeed. Well done. <laughs>